This is Dr. Karen, and you're listening to the DeFacto Leaders Podcast on the Bee Podcast Network, where I help pediatric therapists and educators become better leaders so they can make a bigger impact with their services. With over 15 years of experience supporting school-age kids with diverse learning needs, I'll share up-to-date evidence-based practices, my own experiences, and guest interviews designed to help clinicians, teachers, and aspiring school leaders feel more confident in the way they serve their students and clients. I'll cover a range of topics designed to help you support students' emotional and academic growth and set kids up for success in adulthood, including how to support language, literacy, executive functioning, as well as how to help IEP teams working together to support kids across the day. Whether you want to learn more effective strategies for your therapy sessions or classroom, be a more influential leader on your team, or find creative ways to use your skills to advance in your career, I've got you covered. Hey there, it's Dr. Karen, and welcome to episode 139 of the DeFacto Leaders Podcast. Learners in K-12 settings have changed over the past 25 years, and what were considered best practices in the 1990s may no longer work for learners in the 2020s. Much of this is due to technology, the invention of the iPhone, and the skills young adults need when entering the workforce. There's a large amount of debate on how to address these evolving needs effectively, and that's why I wanted to invite Dr. John Berkey to the DeFacto Leaders Podcast to talk about his experiences on the forefront of technology initiatives and many other initiatives in the schools. Dr. John Berkey is the Executive Director of the Large Unit District Association of Illinois. The organization represents and supports 55 of the largest unit school districts in Illinois. He also serves as an adjunct professor at Northern Illinois University, where he teaches aspiring superintendents and school business managers. Berkey was previously the superintendent in Huntley Community School District in Illinois for 12 years. He also served as a middle school teacher and principal earlier in his career. He has three degrees from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. In this episode, he discusses how the invention of the iPhone has impacted students' mental health and the ability to be engaged in the learning process. He also shares his thoughts on the question of how do we address concerns about attention span while allowing opportunities to build self-discipline and allowing access to phones for unexpected emergencies. How do we consider learner needs, age, and brain development when establishing classroom cell phone rules? And what questions should we be asking to determine the impact and effectiveness of one-to-one device initiatives in schools? And then we wrap up by talking a little bit about homework policies. And he shares why asking is homework effective is the wrong question and what we should be asking instead. If you're a direct service provider, you're probably very familiar with the impact all of these initiatives have on students. You're probably aware that we cannot think in black and white when thinking about any of these things. And so that's really the overarching theme of this episode is that all of these issues have a lot of nuance. We have to think about the individual student needs when it comes to brain differences, 
and differing needs as students go from kindergarten all the way through 12th grade. So that's why before we get going, I wanted to mention the School of Clinical Leadership, my program that helps related service providers design services that support executive functioning in K-12 settings. Supporting executive functioning skills are gonna be really important as we navigate all of these different changes. Students need to be able to learn skills of self-discipline and understand how to manage their use of devices. We have to be able to expose them to some of these experiences in schools so that they can eventually learn how to monitor their own cell phone use, for example. And we have to be able to help teachers and the people who are supporting the kids in the classrooms navigate all of these different decisions that need to be made in order to help kids do this. So that's why it's really important as a related service provider to be there as a person on that team who can be a leader in helping design some of these services and make them individualized. And that's what I help you do in the School of Clinical Leadership. So to learn more about the program, go to drkarendudekbrennan.com backslash clinical leadership. Now, please enjoy this interview with Dr. John Berkey. Today, I'm joined by Dr. John Berkey, who is the Executive Director of LUDA. So thank you so much for being here with me today. Hey, Karen. No, it's great to be with you. Well, um, so I thought we'd start off by having you just share a little bit about yourself, your background, and what you're doing now. Well, I'm the Executive Director of LUDA, which LUDA stands for the Large Unit District Association of Illinois. We represent 56 of the largest unit districts in Illinois. Our, our largest district is Chicago Public Schools, and we have districts as small as 3,500 students. And we're very geographically uh, diverse across the state of Illinois. And I work a lot primarily with superintendents, and we do both advocacy in Springfield, and we also do professional development and provide a lot of collaboration opportunities for our superintendents, for our central office administrators as well. And so prior to this, I was a superintendent okay. for 12 years. I was in Huntley, which is a north, far northwest suburb of Chicago of about 10,000 students. And I did, like I said, did that for 12 years and then previously was a you know, teacher principal. And most of my building experience was at the middle school level. So that's a little bit about me. Great. Well, um, like I said, I know that for for the topic that we wanted to talk about, there's just sort of an, an overarching theme that we wanted to discuss just how the learner has changed over the past 10 to 15 years since you have been in leadership positions. So I thought where we could start is just broadly some big changes that you've seen, and then we can kind of get into some specific specific topics that come up. Yeah, so, so and I can go back even, you know, even farther. I, I yeah. first first was in the classroom teaching in the early 1990s. And of course, I have my own experiences when I was a student in school. And, mm -hmm. and, and so I, I, I think things have really changed for students. But I also think it's important we put that in perspective that every generation is is different than the one before. And to, to tell you a quick story. So we, we actually moved uh, my son into to U of I yesterday. 
and he's a, uh, going in as a transfer student. So he's a junior, but it's his first time going away. So we moved him into college and he's living in an apartment and the apartment, uh, very, very nice newer building, which uh, U of I is building a lot of new apartment buildings. It's got a pool on the roof. And so I, I had to keep reminding my son, you know, that's not what college was like when yeah. I went to college. And so <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, and, and of course, what, you know, what do you hear from your kids when you say that? Yeah. Dad, yeah, it's different. Okay. It's different because mm-hmm. they, they don't want to hear about what it was like. But you know what? Here's here's the point is when I was in college, you know, and my dad was with me, he, my college experience was different than his college experience. And so I think we have seen a, a continual evolution of experiences that we have educationally. And, you know, my, my, my son who's, who's going to school will be using, um, will be using Canvas as an online learning platform. We didn't even have computers when I was in college there. So it was all, you know, traditional books and all traditional classrooms. So of course his experience is going to be different. And I, and I, I, I say that because it's not necessarily bad. It's just, it's just that it's different. And my experience Mm -hmm. was different than than my parents. And so I think we always have to be careful of being guilty of talking about the the past and kind of waxing nostalgic for the past. Yeah. Because I think there are things in the past we can pull out that were maybe better, but I think there's things in the present that are better. So I, I, I say that as kind of a, a big caveat because I'm probably going to spend some time talking about the way things have changed and maybe this was better, but I think we have to put it in the perspective and through the lens of the fact that we have a continual evolution of what students, uh, what students experience, and and how students think, and yes, I think it's been rapidly accelerated in the last ten years, but I don't think it started ten years ago. So yeah, I can think about my college dorm. There definitely was not a pool <laughs> on the roof. But, uh, but, but you know, yeah. but but you know, to put that you know to look at it bigger though, and yeah. I know people will criticize it. Why are college kids living that way? Well, part of it is they're living that way at home. And so Mm -hmm. the whole standard of how we live, air conditioning is a good example. So we've gone through the issue of should we have air conditioning in all of our schools? I mean, in Illinois, um, obviously warmer in Southern Illinois than Northern Illinois, but it's really only needed for a small percentage of the school year. And so back in the day, very few schools had air conditioning. And now most new schools that are built, if not all new schools are built, have air conditioning put in. And and I'll hear sometimes people say, well, you know, we didn't have air conditioning when I was a kid. Okay, but look at the larger context. Years ago, 50 years ago, a lot of people in their homes didn't have air conditioning. And now they do in new homes that are built. And so our whole level of, of standard has changed as a society. So, of course, our, our standard has changed for, uh, you know, our kids' perspective and their standards have changed as well. Yeah. Yeah, that is, I mean, just so many little things like that, um, that just our expectations about what the experience is going to be like, is just, it's so different. So obviously, if we're talking about how things have evolved, the big thing is technology. And I know that there are a lot of a lot of thoughts about this, um, depending on what perspective you are coming from. Um, so for example, I I interviewed some people who are in the learning and development space, and we were the conversation was about 
what do people, when they're in that first role, like in a call center job, working in food services, what skills do they need in order to be successful in a job environment? So, so there was that conversation and they were just saying, you know, we're integrating um, using sec- cell phones in as an instructional tool. And we've got the, you know, the one-to-one with devices and things like that. And it's, it's so great that we're doing this because a lot of times that's expected in the, in the workplace, but then there's the other side of, of the coin and just another perspective of people saying, Hey, there's certain kids that, you know, neurologically it's, it's not good to be putting kids in front of devices when they're too young, just for brain development or kids with ADHD and issues with attention that that's, we're going too far in the other direction. So I know that there are a lot of different thoughts on this and you, you know, you've shared that you've changed your perspective on this. So I guess where we can start is just, um, like if we could start with cell phone policy, cell phones in the classroom, how we handle that, how has your thinking evolved and and how do you handle giving districts advice on what their policies and practices should be? Well, I think one thing we have to establish is that there is some really clear data starting to emerge that the rise, a rapid rise in uh teenage uh, emotional disorders and Mm -hmm. and, and emotional issues started around the year 2012. Mm -hmm. So especially in teenage girls. So when you go back and I I talked earlier about, you know, how, how kids are constantly evolving and it is an evolution, but this was a really big spike that's happened. And I think then this spike really got accelerated during the pandemic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when we look at what, could that be like what happened about 2012 that might have caused that? And, and I think it's very clear that what happened then was the cell phone. So yeah, January 9th, 2007 was a really, I think, pivotal, pivotal day. That was the day that Steve Jobs came out and said, today, Apple is going to reinvent the phone. And he introduced the iPhone to the world. We didn't really understand what that meant at that point in, in time. And it took three or four years to that to really evolve to where more and more people were able to get, you know, an, an iPhone or, you know, an Android phone. But by 2011, 2012, more people, especially teenagers, were starting to get smartphones. And so there's a real strong correlation, again, between that and uh, and, and kids having uh, emotional issues, uh, increased emotional issues. So is there a, you know, is there a cause and effect there? And I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of strong evidence that, that there is. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, before I get to the you know, cell phone policy thing, I think it's, I think it's important to look at what, what is it? What is it about cell phones? What, what is the issue with these devices right. that would be causing all of this? And, and I actually think it's really complicated. And, I, I, so I don't think it's just one thing. I think I think cell phones. It's it's a whole it, it's a whole it's a plethora from attention span. It is a big thing. I think that's changed in kids, and and I think cell phones and other technology has been a big a factor in that. 
we kids just don't have the attention span anymore that they used to have. And doing traditional school is becoming more and more of a struggle for many kids because of that, which if you're not successful in school can lead to uh, you, you not feeling good about what you're doing. And if you don't like school, again, you're, you're, you, you may, you may have emotional issues. So that is, I, I think one thing that the cell phone can do, but I think the second one is just how it's changed kids relationships with each other. Yeah. And you, you know, we, we all know about social media and some of the, the, the perils of that happening with, with, with kids when kids are on, you know, Snapchat or whatever, you know, I know there are always two or three apps ahead of adults. So right. Yes. <laughs> apps that they're on using with each other, where they're using that as a primary way to connect with other students. And suddenly they're connected 24-7. And that's a real change from, from the way friendships used to happen mm-hmm. prior to the cell phone. Yeah. And, and kids yeah. certainly had um, you know, had challenges with with friend groups. And I mean, that's nothing new. But 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 now it's 24-7 and it invades every, literally can invade every minute of their life, even when they're sleeping, when they, you know, wake up and keep checking their phone. So I think these social media and these other connection apps have really changed what 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 teenagers' experiences are. And I think the data shows that it's done so even more for girls in general than it has for boys. Yeah. But this is a real issue where people are teenagers are kind of, you know, garnering their self-worth from how many likes did they get? How many, you know, what are people saying about me? All this stuff that just wasn't an issue before 2012. And so I think the cell phone is a significant issue that we need to confront. And and I will go on to say during the pandemic, I think it became accelerated just because kids weren't in school for, for a mm-hmm. period of time. So yeah. I think cell phone only became a more primary mode of communication and and these apps became a more primary mode of communication so i I think that's why we saw it accelerate during the pandemic i think it all began well before so the issue becomes and now you know after five minutes i'm getting your your question no that's okay the the issue becomes what do we do about it and and the answer is i don't know but i do know this that if we fail to address, or, or I should say fail to recognize that cell phones are a core part of the issue our teenagers are dealing with, then we're never going to solve it. And so I think the first thing is is just we have to confront as educators and parents that this is a real issue. And you just bury our head in the sand and say, you know, well, they're here, they're here and there's nothing we can do about it. I guess you know we're we're seeing a huge rise in kids that that need you know that that need counseling and kids that need other services and and I think counseling is a really important tool to help kids. I mean, more and more adults are needing it as well. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that we can counsel our way out of this. I, I, I think that we have to look at the root causes of what's what's happening to happening to our kids. So what should what should schools do? I mean, it's been a it, it, but but I'm going to take it a step further and talk about what should parents do. So yes, mm-hmm. I think that, that it has been a real evolution because phones came out of nowhere for schools. We didn't really know how to deal with them, and I was still a superintendent when when this whole all this happened in the 2010s. 
So we, at first, a lot of schools had a, you can't bring your cell phone or you can't have your cell phone in sight, but that was kind of in the infancy when not as many right. kids had them or, or, or that. But as the years went on, kids are using them for everything. And, and parents are expecting to be connected to their kids 24-7. Like if they text them in class, they want a yep, response. That's an issue well, for I think sure. we've seen you know, over time, phones have become more a lot more um, ubiquitous in schools. And meaning that you might walk into a classroom and you, you'll see kids with a cell phone sitting on their desk. You wouldn't have seen that probably even five, five years ago. So I think schools are like, they're navigating this. I mean, how, how do we deal with it? And I think, you know, I think educators, uh, policymakers and you know, school policy people know the stuff I just said. And I think there's a recognition now that this really is an issue. And so in school with cell phones, aside from the social media stuff we talked about earlier, just the whole attention span thing. I mean, if you're if you're trying to focus on your calculus class in high school. And you've got your phone here and you're getting you're getting text or you're getting other messages and you kind of even if you don't read them, even if you just see, oh, I got an alert, I got an alert, you're you're distracted. And so it's taking your focus off of the calculus class. And so I think we're starting to see schools that are trying to get the cell phones just more hidden, not not take them away, mm-hmm. not you know, not allow them in school. But one of those, I don't want to see your cell phone during class. Some some teachers are, are collecting them. You know, they have some type of a tree where kids put their their I'll put their cell phones mm-hmm. in a pocket. I've heard of the tree thing. Into the class and, and and quite frankly, there's probably a meetings where adults go that need to have those too. So this is oh, not yeah. just not just a. <laughs> I mean, my cell phone's outside right off. now, so it yeah. doesn't go off. <laughs> not an issue at all. Yeah, uh, uh, not just a, a child issue. So I think that's what I'm seeing in schools is that. We are recognizing the cell phones here to stay. And of course it is. We're, we're not going to go back to where kids don't have cell phones. So I, I think that how do we teach kids better management of the device? Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of where we are right now in terms of, 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 of policy is trying to navigate how can you use it responsibly. And I think a lot of it's moderation, Karen. I mean, I think mm-hmm. I think all... All good things are you know good in moderation, but good things become bad things when they're when they're done to an extreme. And I think that's what's happened with with cell phones in many in many cases. In terms of the social media stuff, which is a little bit less of a of a school issue, more of a parent issue, I, I think that uh, I think kids should not have some of these apps when they're when they're thirteen or fourteen years old. Yeah, and I think that that there's actually states that are passing legislation to do just that. I know Utah has been very out in the forefront on some legislation uh, around that. Uh, I I think they've got some pretty strict laws about the age identity really does need to be proven uh, to get certain, to get certain apps. And also I think they've done a, where the apps have to be uh, unusable between like 11 at night and six in the morning. I would like that on my phone to make me not want to check Instagram at midnight. (laughs) So, so I think, I think there are some policy things going on around, around the country. And, and I think we're going to see more of that. And I, and I hope we're just, we're reasonable about all of it, because again, there is no easy answer to this. If there was, Mm -hmm. somebody would have figured it out. But I think we have to recognize that we really do need to uh, address it. As far as as far as home goes, I 
I, I am just, I'm seeing more and more advice from, you know, people who study this that are a lot smarter than I am, that, that one of the best things you can do, not just for kids, but for adults is get cell phones out of your bedroom. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. You should not be, you know, or, you know, when you're sleeping, you should not be sleeping with a cell phone next to you because because even when, you know, you might wake up for, you know, that, that quick 30 seconds that you wouldn't even remember, you know, the next day. But if you wake up and you're like, oh, I got to check my phone and you get on the phone, it just it just re-energizes your, your mind. You know, we all know about mm-hmm. the, you know, the blue light research right. and all yeah. you know, stops your uh, uh, stops your sleep hormones from from going. So it's it's. I, I think the bedroom's a big one. And I would say that for, for teenagers. I, I think that having those in your bedroom where they can they can be on that social media, like I said earlier, 24-7, where they might get an upsetting message at 3 a.m. and that's going to stop them from sleeping for the rest of the night. It's going to set them up for a bad day the next day. I think that's something that 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 parents can do. And I and I'm I'm gonna throw it back all on us. I mean, I think as adults, we've we've got to do something about our own self. I mean, how how many times are you out to dinner? Mm-hmm. And if you're like next to a table where everybody's on their phone, they're not talking to each other. I know. And, so, and, and see yeah. that more you see that more and more. And so and, th- and these are adults. I'm not talking about kids. And so I think that uh I, I just think that we have maybe we as adults, you know, whether whether you're a parent, a teacher, what whatever your 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 role is, or or all of the above, that you know, working on how do we moderate this use ourselves to model it for our our kids, I think might be a real positive thing. And I think we're all learning as adults too. I think this is also new to us too, that yeah. we're still learning. I have a uh, a funny, but not funny story about cell phones and adults. So um, actually when we talked last week, um, I was up in Chicago for the Bruce Springsteen concert. And so, you know, he goes into the audience and like, he's kind of talking to people. He was, he stopped by this one woman in the audience and he was holding her hand, singing to her, and she had her phone like this in between him and her recording it. That was like, the boss is serenading you, put your phone down, you know, like, I just, it's just really interesting how, um, you know, I mean, I, I get you want to document things and get video or take pictures, but like, just being in the moment and not having a device there, it just makes the whole thing feel different to you. Um, so it, I just, it does. And, you know, you see that. that at, really... oh, my, my gosh, you see that at concerts all the time where people yeah. are recording the whole thing. And 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 and, and again, I, I I get it. I, I got to admit, I'm guilty of that sometimes too. But <clears throat> I also think <clears throat> that it's a different experience when you're at a live event, whether it's a concert, whether it's a, a you mm-hmm. know. A, conversation you're having with somebody and when you're on your phone your attention is divided and so you're not really all there and so so that woman who was you know uh with having the bruce springsteen experience was she really all there Um, i know it was was just so weird they're partly focused on how do i record this so so yeah okay so she can watch it a thousand times in the future and feel like she's there but it's yeah once in a lifetime experience. And I was just thinking to myself, because I've done that at concerts, where I think, how often do I actually look at those pictures? Or do I just eventually delete them, you know, or the videos, or whatever it is? Um, Or would I rather just remember that experience when it was happening? 
So I'll so. tell you what I've done. So I've, I found a middle ground for myself because I said I'm guilty of that too. Yeah. So again, we're all learning. So what I do, if I'm seeing something I want to record, I will, I will, when, you know, like say it's a song that I really like, I like the artist who's saying, I want to show that, you know, I want to be able to show, remember that I saw that song. I will record like 10 seconds of it. Yeah. And I'll put my, mm-hmm. so it's yeah. like, so it's like, so it's like, I got a little clip of it. And so I can remember what, where I was sitting, what it looked like, but then I put the phone away. And so I think that, again, I think there's middle ground here. I think we can find ways to use these devices you know, responsibly for ourselves to not consume our, our, our whole focus and attention. So that, that's what I found is kind of a, a way that works, that works for, for me. Yeah. I've tried that too. You know, I have not been a very, um, a very good picture taker my entire life. And so I didn't when, you know, with, with my, my marketing and things like that, I know that people like to see personal pictures when on your Instagram account and things like that. And, I just never have them because in the moment I don't want to pull my phone out (laughs) and it's just, I never feel like doing it. I didn't feel like doing it before, before, like when it was just regular cameras. Um, So I don't know, but back to the, uh, the idea of, of the, you know, the cell phones with kids and um, you know, setting boundaries around the cell phones. I think some of the questions that people have are okay. Obviously a young child might not have, you know, just from where they are from a brain development perspective, they might not have the ability to um, understand how to discipline themselves and redirect themselves to their lesson and know, oh, I should probably just, you know, just check my phone and then put it down and, you know, ask themselves the question of, am I on track and am I paying attention to what I'm supposed to be? So I know that some of the questions and debate that I've heard is that some people feel like, you know, there shouldn't be phones in the classroom, it's distracting. But then on the other hand, it's, well, eventually, they're going to be adults, and they're going to have to learn how to manage that cell phone and um, give themselves the opportunity to know how to redirect. So do you think it's, I mean, have you seen people doing handling this differently across the different age groups? Oh, I think so. And I think they should be handled differently. Yeah. I mean, we, we know yeah, cognitively that, you know, kids have extremely different needs as they, as they uh, you know, matriculate from being very young to, to middle school, to high school, and it, and it shouldn't look all the same and we shouldn't treat it all the same. And so, yes, I, I definitely think so. And as I said earlier, you know, kind of a believer that, you know, it's, it's better probably for, you know, maybe, maybe kids at a certain age need to have a cell phone for emergency purposes or to mm-hmm. contact their parents. And I, I do believe, I don't know if you can still buy a, a flip phone, but you can buy phones that are, that don't have, you know, the ability to have all these apps and everything where they really are more just for, for, for talking or for texting, you know, with your parents. And so I think there's ways you can get devices if that's what your concern is, is that you yeah. want to be able to your kids and and totally get that uh so i think i think you know not just starting off with a really young child and taking them and getting them an iphone and okay mm-hmm. here's everything good luck yeah th- that's not what you want to do when a kid is eight or nine or, or or ten years old and i think you know to your point i think kids do need to be introduced to these things because part of uh, not part of a huge part of what what childhood 
in development is about both from parents at home and from from educators in school is preparing kids for the for to be on their own and if we don't introduce them to any of of this and they're suddenly exposed to it for the first time on their own then they're probably not going to handle it very well then either. So I, I I do think we have to be reasonable to make it a part of the education process, both both at home and in schools. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And I have heard that argument as well. Just, you know, what about emergencies? And, um, you know, I think the the phone with limited apps or limited features is probably a good middle ground to where you can address that concern, um, especially, you know, if you do have a some a, a kid who maybe has to go navigate something after school and you know get figure out how to get home and get in contact with people and things like that. I wanted to take a quick break here and talk about the School of Clinical Leadership. I've been supporting school therapists for a long time and I understand how enticing it sounds to be able to print something off for your therapy session and just have it ready for students and to have some kind of a pre-made curriculum that you can use. But as you know, pre-made curriculums and worksheets don't often meet student individual needs. Really what we need to be doing as related service providers is have frameworks that we use for addressing skills and have some flexibility so that we can make it adaptable to different ages and ability levels. And so when we're thinking about supporting executive functioning and we're thinking about all these different changes that are happening in education, when it comes to using technology, when it comes to trends that are happening, we have to be able to be flexible in the way that we provide services. As a therapist, there are a lot of things that you can do to support cognitive functioning in your therapy sessions. But what we really need to do is understand how to take this a step further and support the teachers in the classroom. And that's what I show you how to do in the School of Clinical Leadership. The School of Clinical Leadership helps related service providers take on a leadership role on their teams so that they can design effective services that support executive functioning and cognitive growth in students in K-12 settings. To learn more about the program, go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash clinical leadership. Now let's get back to the interview. I, I remember, you know, at one of the, the the districts in my area, they did try to say, you know, you need to leave your phones in your lockers. And I, I think that they had a hard time implementing that. But I remember that they did say at their parent orientation, it was, please don't text your kids at school. I mean, unless it's an emergency, please don't text them because unless you absolutely need to. And if you, you know, if you need to pull them out of class because some emergency happened, just come get them, but don't text them about things that they don't need to know about during the school day, because that makes our job a lot harder. So there was, there was definitely a request for assistance from the parents to help set some of those boundaries. <laughs> so no, and it takes, you know, it's, it's, as with any aspect of education, Karen, we all have to work together. And mm -hmm. education is a huge component of what parents do. And, and it's a huge part of what schools do. And when we're working in concert, that's really when it works. It works best. Yeah. So I know the cell phones are cell phones are part of the process. And I know that some teachers do choose to use, you know, leverage cell phones as part of the process um, when kids get older. 
But then there are other devices besides cell phones that are being used, such as, um, you know, tablets, one-to-one device initiatives in schools. And I've, I've heard some of the same concerns and debates within those initiatives. So can you talk a little bit about the, the work that you've done in this area and how your thoughts have changed with how we use how we use devices in school, especially with thinking about things with um, if our kids on devices and do what things do they have access to, even when you intend them to be using instructional instructional programming, like, you know, access to the internet and things like that. Yeah, I think this is very different than cell phones. And yeah. so I, all schools now, I, I think I think I'm safe to say all schools now uh, have uh, have one to one devices. And I say that safe more safely just because after the during the pandemic um, schools that didn't have uh, needed to get there to to have students be able to be educated remotely. So. I was actually have a unique perspective because the district I was in, we were really at the forefront of one-to-one -one implementation. We were actually at one point the largest district doing a full, uh, K, we went K-12 uh, implementation of one-to-one -one devices. And we started that in 2012 and we're completely one-to-one uh, -one by 2014. And so the reason we did it, and, and this is a key, is we did it to help differentiate instruction for kids. And we wanted to make it easier for teachers to differentiate instruction and for kids to be able to work at their own pace on certain things. And, and so to more personalized learning, and you've heard that term, you know, personalized mm -hmm. learning, that's, that's what we were attempting to do. And some of that is just not possible on the same degree without, without technology. So I think it's a really, really good tool for that, I think teachers that use one-to-one -one effectively in their classes, it, it's a it's a very positive thing. I think there's classrooms where it's not used effectively, and then it's not positive. So I don't think one-to-one -one is a is by itself a problem. I think it's all about how it's used, and I think we need to look now. Now that we're really now ten years into a lot of schools going one-to-one, -one, at least five years in. I think it's important now just to look at the the data we're getting on on kids and achievement data and whatever metrics a school uses to measure what what they're trying to measure are are we getting gains with kids using one to one and I'm not sure the answer is always going to be yes but I also don't know that it's because one to one's bad or is it just not being being implemented and, mm -hmm. and you used in the in the right way because often Often these devices are just thrown in, uh, you know, given to teachers here, use them. Here's a curriculum, but they're not really trained how to use them. And I, again, it, I don't I don't even say that like negatively in that anytime you're a new adopter and you're doing something new, that happens. <laughs> and yeah. so if you want to wait till 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 we've got 30 years of research, well, you're not going to be you're not going to be an early adopter. So or even an adopter with everybody else. So that that's natural that 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 happened, but I do think it's incumbent upon us not just to say, "Oh, well, we're one to one and it's good. Let's move forward." I think we have to look at the data, and I think we have to look at how can one to one be better. And I definitely think it can be it can be better. Not as worried about the attention issues with one to one if it's again if it's if it's done the right the right way. I think kids are doing work just in a different in a different way when they're on 
devices. I do not think a student's 100% of a student's day should be spent on a device. I think, mm -hmm. again, it's about moderation. And I think there is still incredible value in classroom interaction and in classroom discussion and small group discussions uh, among kids. So I think all of those things still need to happen. This isn't like in place of all of that. But I do think one-to-one -one and personalized instruction is is one of the important tools that we can use to help meet um, more kids' needs. Because here's the thing, when when people will get critical, and you probably you know, probably talk to people like this on your show, people will say, yeah, but uh, here's the problem with this, here's the problem with this. Here's what we gotta remember, is pre one-to-one -one and pre actually, and pre cell phone, pre all the, pro all the mm -hmm. quote unquote problems we're talking about, the uh, student achievement data from kids, from a lot of kids wasn't very good. And so we had a significant number of kids that are are not reading a grade level in third grade. We have a significant number of kids that that school wasn't working for. So the old model didn't work either. And and I think that that you know looking at something like one to one and saying, well, this hasn't worked, so we need to go back. No, that's the complete wrong answer. The the right answer is to look at how is it working? How is it not working? And how do we make it better? Or how do we migrate to something else? Because again, we know the old system of 25 or 30 kids sitting in a classroom, all being taught the same thing by a teacher. It, it did not work for all kids. In fact, mm -hmm. it didn't work for many kids. Yeah. And yeah. You know, we all know about the huge achievement gaps that we, that we have among, uh, you know, many of the subgroups in our, in our schools and schools working better for some groups of kids than others. And that's not right. And school needs to work for all groups. And so that's where personalized learning, I think is one really important tool. And that's just really assisted with, with, uh, with technology used in the right way. Yeah. Yeah. With the one-to-one, -one, do you see this as something, I mean, you're saying, you know, most districts are, that's something that most districts are doing. And would you say that a lot of people in those leadership positions, those, you know, superintendents and people who are on the forefront of those initiatives, is that generally the thought is that, well, we're, this is here to stay and we need to figure out how to do it the right way. Would you say that's kind of I think the, so. yeah, the I, I think I think I think we recognize that just like in our 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 adult lives if you're you know if you're in most um you know office type jobs and you know a laptop or a desktop whatever it is 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 an important part of 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 how you spend your day you know to mm -hmm. keep mail for good or bad email is an important part of how we spend our day communicating with people in that mode so you, you, you it's a tool that you got to use i mean it's not going away even though i think you and i could we could do you could do a whole show on how it's changed the office culture and the work that oh the yeah that's a and, and and there's plenty of criticism but but again how do we make it better it's not going to it's not going to go away and i think the same is 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 true for our students yeah, I can think of um, back when I was going through my doctoral program, it was this the whole initiative on 21st century learning. And it was all about technology, you know, saying, hey, now in these workplaces, we need to be able to use these different systems and these tools. So they need to be in schools because otherwise, otherwise kids aren't going to be prepared. And, and I have seen that and, and heard that from people who are in those positions where they are training people who are coming out, you know, like high school students who are going into these internships or um, college students who are trying to get their first professional job, that, that those are, 
Um, I would say that the soft skills and the things that you can't learn on a device are still things that are hugely emphasized, but the employers also want all those technical skills as well, which do require you to use devices and be able to utilize learning online and things like that. We, we just got to remember, you know, devices and technology is not an end in itself in education. It's a, it's a, it's a tool. It's a way to help make education better. And if it's used as an end in itself or it's used too much, then it's not it's not good. It's it, it it it's a tool, but there's a lot of other tools as well. Like I said, I'm a huge believer that what what the skills that kids need when they're coming out of school, and we're hearing this just more and more from employers, from colleges, from every everybody, is is that you know they, you want you want kids that are you know they want workers I should say that are adaptable, people that can think for themselves. You know you've heard the adage that many of the jobs that uh, that that kids will have in the future don't even exist today. So how do you yeah. train them for those jobs? Yeah. We we don't know. So teaching kids that can learn and kids that know how to learn and adapt and have all of those social skills, being able to work with a team. I mean, that is oh, yeah. really important skill. So those are all things that absolutely need to be a big part of school. Can some of those things be assisted with technology? Absolutely. Do some of them need to be done without technology? Absolutely. So mm -hmm. I, I think one of the, the ways I could summarize that up is I think in education, we've often had a pendulum swing and, and on whatever the issue is. Get you take the issue and I can tell you where the pendulum is swung. And we we tend to operate in extremes. Like we'll we'll go to one side of the pendulum swing. And then when that's too extreme, we swing to the other side and that's too extreme. And I think with a lot of these issues, there is a true middle ground where we can make things make things work. And I think I think technology is just a great example of that. It's not all good, it's not all bad. But at, at one extreme or another, it's 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 not going to be good. Yeah. Yeah. OK, so there's one other issue. I know that we're kind of getting to the getting to the end here. But one other thing I wanted to ask you about, which I think you know, we can probably apply that same concept of um, it's it's not good or bad. It's more how you do it. But just the thoughts around homework, because this is one of the things I know that there are. Um, a big thing when I was going through my program, when I was in the schools was, you know, the John Hattie meta-analysis. And one of the things that came up on that was the effectiveness of homework. And on one side of the argument, you know, some people are saying like, it's, you know, there's research that shows that homework doesn't actually increase. It's not effective, but a lot of times when people say it's not effective, I'm always questioning, well, what's your measurement of effectiveness? Is it grades? Is it um, you know, whether or not people are able to get a job after school is, it, you know, how are you measuring that? But then some of the questions that I get from some people who are very specific into subject areas, um, as reading, for example, um, if you have students who need specific practice on certain skills, focused practice can actually be beneficial. So I guess the question is, you know, thoughts around homework, um, and, and what what trends have you seen as far as just the philosophy of people in those leadership positions and how it's being implemented in school? Yeah, I think I think actually saying is homework good or bad is a completely false debate. I, I think it yeah. all depends on what the homework <laughs> is. And I think those research studies, and not that I would ever question, you know, Hattie's research, 
But I think some those people would. I actually have. Yeah. Well, the problem the problem with Hattie, you know, the problem with any research on homework is it's all really about what's the quality of the homework. And so yeah. if you're doing research on his homework, help kids grow in a certain area. Well, it really comes back to what is the homework. I think there might be uh, homework, or you know, if you want to call it self-directed work, you know, students yeah. are doing outside of the teacher's uh, direct supervision. I, is it good or bad? Well, let's look at the homework. You know, traditionally, again, this is one of the reasons I am an advocate of differentiated instruction and I am an advocate of personalized learning is traditionally in classrooms. And it was that way when I was in school, probably that way when you were in school, there were a lot of worksheets. Mm -hmm. And so you would, you know, you'd be in an elementary class and uh, spelling is a great example. I mean, what would a, what a, what a, you know, lousy subject that was. So, so yeah, spelling. writing the spelling words over what and we over do again. Spelling, we <laughs> would write them over and over again. And then you would, you know, have a worksheet where you had to fill in, you know, you had to find the word and the, and, and the fit in the sentence and all of, all of that. And so was that productive homework? Well, there might be kids that learn to spell by that rote, that rote writing of the word multiple times, then good, good. That's what they should do. Is that true for all kids? No. And I think that the homework was all done one for all. And it had to, it had to be because the teacher had no other tools. So the teacher had to have a homework assignment that was going to be the same. I mean, how many, you know, it, you know, following along the, you know, the ELA path, how many, you know, worksheets did you do when you learned adjectives, nouns, pronouns, all of that, where you had to identify it and you had to underline words and all that. The problem is with the quality of that homework is you're not learning to use them. You're not learning to write with them. And so I think the research on that is those worksheets that we did for years probably had very little value. In fact, that I would argue that's why kids are taught parts of speech every year all through up until high school, because we don't learn them well. And so it's not that they haven't had it before. It's because they, they weren't learning it the right, they weren't learning it the right way. So I would argue that it's about what's the homework like. Now, take the example of learning those parts of speech. If you're learning them by having to implement them through a writing process where kids are, are, are getting to use them and the teacher's evaluating their writing, well, that might be a very productive assignment to be able to, to learn that. I, I, I'm so, I, I was in school so long ago. I had to, I had to diagram sentences. I don't know if you, do you, ever, do you ever have to diagram sentences? Um, yeah, I did. And, and that is actually some of the things that I kind of dive into because there is, um, there's a middle ground between the, the full-blown writing assignment and the worksheet that doesn't work. And that's kind of what I do because you're yeah. right. It does need to be differentiated for the student who can handle the writing versus the student who needs a little more structure, but not Absolutely. something wrote. But you yeah, know, the, di the diagramming of sentences was just painful. Like I, I yeah. luckily I only, nobody I likes that. <laughs> did diagramming because it's even really a generation before me when diagramming was a big thing. And my argument was, diagramming sentences is a really effective tool at teaching kids to diagram sentences, but nothing <laughs> else. Yeah. And yeah. so it's like, what, what are we really trying to teach them? I mean, you're never going to diagram sentences when you're an adult. And so the point of learning all of this is to be a good communicator, a good speaker, a good writer. And so we, we have to make it part of that process. So I would say the same with math homework. Um, I, I, hey, I'm a believer. There are just certain math facts and skills you need to know. Um, I, I think you're at a disadvantage if you don't know your times tables, 
And so even though we have calculators, yes, you could do it all on a calculator, do it all in a, in a put a formula in a computer, but but there are just certain basic things in math. If you just know the facts, it's going to help you with the higher level stuff. So mm -hmm. I do think yeah. what whatever tools a teacher needs to use and homework may be part of it and, and, and repetition and homework might be part of it to learn those 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 facts. Then I think that's a positive thing. And, and, I, and I'm not arguing that all of this should be fun or that if, an, if a homework assignment is, well, I don't like doing this, that it's not worthwhile. That's not always true because sometimes we need to learn things that just aren't fun to learn or we do just need to memorize certain things. But again, I'm talking about a middle uh, a middle ground. I mean, math shouldn't be all about memorization and it shouldn't all be about uh, rote formulas. It should be about problem solving. And so how do you take that basic information and get to mm -hmm. teaching kids problem solving? That That's what math homework ultimately, uh, in my opinion, should should look like. So I just think if, if we're going to say to parents, well, just, you know, sometimes we say, well, you should measure how much time are they spending and that's too much time or that's too little time. I don't know that that's a fair statement. I think it's a, what are they doing? Yeah. And if they're spending two hours doing meaningless worksheets, I'd say that's too much time. Yeah. I'd say minutes doing meaningless worksheets is too much time. So I, I think that we have, you know, parents and educators, we just need to look at more what is the quality of, of that work, which is a challenge because uh, quite frankly, the, the higher quality, probably homework that kids could do is just harder for teachers because it's not in, from a grading perspective, it's just harder. So teachers are really limited in being able to do, you know, some of the things that we're talking about. And I totally, you know, I totally get that. You know, when I was a teacher, grading was you know, the least fun thing I had to do. And I'm sure most teachers would say that as well today, but, but, you know, those, those, those worksheets we were talking about um, were, uh, were, uh, they were easy to grade. And so that, that some of that was out of, out of necess necessity as, as well. Yeah. I think the, um, I like the framework of, of thinking about automaticity versus problem solving, because I think that can be a useful framework you can apply to a lot of different areas where it's, what are the skills that you can practice in order so that, so that it's solid enough that you're not using a lot of, you know, cognitive resources so that when you get to the problem solving, you can actually focus on the problem solving. And that's sort of the way that I, that I approach my teaching and learning of those some of those things that you just mentioned that, yeah, if you do it in a worksheet and you're just drilling it, it's not going to transfer. And that's why we're still working on it in high school when it probably should have been solid in the early elementary years. So, so yeah, I, I like that, that thought process. I definitely grew up in the, in the worksheet years. And I've seen a lot of teachers kind of going in the other direction where they're just saying things like, well, for your homework is to read for 20 minutes a night, which obviously it's always a good practice to be reading with kids, but then um, the consistency of implementation and the equity issues become a, a factor because then you have kids who are not getting the same thing as the other kids when they go home, which is, you know, a whole different conversation. So, um, Absolutely. you know, there's, there's that as well. Um, I would say at least with read, read 20 minutes a day. I do think that if you're thinking about, is it quality time that if you do that, well, it is a lot better than sending home like I can think of some of the silly worksheets that I've seen where it's crossword puzzles of vocabulary words where it's like, eh, that's probably not the best use of time, but reading with your kids definitely is. <laughs> so, yep. 
Yeah, well, I know that we could we could keep going on a lot of different topics, but I think this where what we've covered today, I think will be really useful for people. So um, do you I guess are there are there any places where people can reach out to you or connect with you? Um, it, I know that you have a podcast as well. So where can people learn more about your work and what you do? Yeah, so we have a website. It's LutaIllinois.org. Um, and I have to say my podcast is not nearly as good as yours, Karen. You do you do you do a really nice job and have Thank you know you. have a number of episodes. Mine is just focused on district level leadership. So uh it's you know it's different issues than what we talked about today. But I, I would just say, you know, I, these are just my perspectives. And I, I think we all have different perspectives. I've I've been doing this for over 30 years. And I, I think they're informed perspectives, but I think it's just important we continue this dialogue. And I think it's really important for our kids that we really focus on the issue we talked about earlier, and that's cell phones and other technology, because we, we do have a, a, a crisis that's happening in mental health um, with our kids. And I think that we have to deal with the root causes if we are really going to attempt to, to, to make a dent in those, in those issues. Yeah, I agree. Well, thank you so much for being here with me today. Hey, great to, great to talk with you today, Karen. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to check the show notes for all the places you can go to connect with Dr. Berkey. And if you are a related service provider and you want to learn how to design services that support executive functioning in K-12 settings, check out the School of Clinical Leadership. To learn more about the program, go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash clinical leadership. As always, it helps me so much if you leave me a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you have an idea for a guest on the show, if you have a topic you'd like to hear me discuss, or if you're interested in being a guest on DeFacto Leaders, then email me at talktome at drkarenspeech.com. I am always interested in hearing stories about teachers, leaders, therapists who are using their skills to support K-12 kids in creative ways. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next time.